Thank you for listening to our church podcast, where it is our joy to share helpful truths from the Bible. We pray this serves as one more tool to help develop leaders within our church and community who love and honor Jesus and reveal it by loving others. If you have any questions or comments about any of the messages, we invite you to join us on any Wednesday, 6 p.m., for a group discussion on the passages and sermons found here. Luke 17 is where we'll be reading this morning. Uh, go ahead and remain seated. I just got two verses for you today. Uh, Luke 17, we're going to be reading verses 1 and 2. It says, He said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Father, I pray now that you would uh, add your blessing to the reading of your word. Help us to understand with clarity what it is that you say to us this morning and help us to apply it to each of our lives. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. The Bible begins with the creation of all things in the universe. If you're familiar with Genesis 1 and 2, uh, you open the front of your Bible and you'll find God speaks the world into existence. And the culmination of all God's creation is humans. Uh, humans are unique among all other creatures that exist because we are made in God's image. He's given us intellect, self-awareness, the ability to communicate. And God has created us with the responsibility to rule over and care for the earth. Uh, everything was good. Everything was flourishing. Uh, the world was full of life and beauty and goodness at the end of Genesis 1 and 2. Turn the page in chapter 3 of Genesis, of course, and everything falls apart. Uh, the first humans rebelled against God when they chose to disobey his command. And that first sin plunged the whole human race into sin and death. Paul put it this way in Romans 5 verse 12, Therefore, uh, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. Uh, Adam's sin-corrupted nature was transmitted to all of us after him, and so we've all followed his lead. All of us are sinners. We sin by nature and we sin by choice. Now, when we talk about sin, we are referring to anything that violates uh, God's commands. In Genesis 3, it was pretty simple. God said, don't eat from this tree, and they disobeyed that very clear command. And thus, that was obviously sin. But sin is a broad word that encompasses a lot of activities. Uh, some sins are obvious. If you were to ask somebody what sin is, they might say, well, it's like when you, when you murder someone or when you steal. Uh, right? Those are things that just come to mind. Everybody agrees, of course, those are sin. Those are wrong. But there are complexities even in that. Because something like theft, for example, uh, doesn't always mean breaking into somebody's house and stealing something from them. Uh, theft could mean that you're stealing time from your employer by not working when you're on the clock, for example. That would be a form of theft that we don't necessarily think of. Uh, but it would be no less sin. Uh, plagiarism, copyright infringements, these are forms of stealing something that belongs to someone else. And so some sins may be less obvious than others. Then there are sins of omission. Sin is not always something wrong that we do, but often sin is something right that we are not doing. Uh, James 4 verse 17 says, Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. And so there's sins that we commit, and then there's sins that are uh, right actions that we're not doing. And then there's also sins that aren't actions at all, but are attitudes. Uh, one of the Ten Commandments, for example, says you should not covet. It is sin for you to desire something that belongs to someone else. 
It's sin for you to, for example, hate someone in your heart, even though maybe you don't do anything outwardly wrong to them. Uh, that doesn't mean you're innocent. It is sin even to hate someone. And so many people have mocked the Bible for such an impossibly high standard. I remember hearing uh, an atheist years ago who regularly criticized God for punishing people based on what he called thought crimes, uh, as if, if it was something that you were doing in your own heart and mind, it didn't affect anybody else. Uh, how could that possibly be sin? Why would we be punished for that? But God cares about our hearts because he knows that it, it is our hearts <clears throat> where our sin originates. Uh, Mark 7, verse 21, Jesus said, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery. Uh, the battle over sin begins in the mind. Uh, you never sin outwardly without first sinning inwardly. Every time someone steals, it starts with coveting in your heart. It starts with the thought of, I want something that belongs to someone else, and then that may lead to the act of stealing. Uh, every adulterous act begins with lust in the heart for someone else. Every murder begins with hate in the heart. Every unkind word that you speak is simply revealing an ugly thought that was in your mind toward that person. Every boastful thing that is said starts with arrogance in the heart. We, we sin inwardly, and then some of that sin is displayed outwardly in our words and actions. But far more sin takes place inside of any one of us uh, than people around us would ever know, right? I don't think any of us would want all of our thoughts uh, to be put up on the screen for everybody to see today. We'd all be embarrassed uh, incredibly by that because so much of our sin takes place in our minds that, that nobody else ever even sees. And so in the wisdom of God, he gives us instructions not only about how we are to live in terms of our actions towards one another, but he also gives us heart attitudes that we should have uh, that then flow out in these actions. In other words, God doesn't just say, uh, don't kill each other and don't steal from each other. He does say that, uh, but he also says things like, love your neighbor as yourself. Because if you have a heart of love towards someone, of course you're not going to murder them and you're not going to steal from them. And so uh, the, the heart attitude ends up correcting a lot of those outward actions. If you get the heart right, those right actions will naturally follow. So sin is inside of us. It, it taints our thinking. It corrupts our words and our actions. Sin is what causes us to do whatever is best for ourselves and not think of others. Sin motivates us to seek our own good. Sin wants to exalt self instead of worshiping God. And this monster of sin lives inside of each one of us. James again says in chapter 1 verse 14, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So sin begins internally. It comes out of our hearts. We're, we're tempted to sin uh, in our minds, and then we, uh, if we yield to that desire, it becomes sin. And then sin ultimately leads to death. Sin is the reason that murder takes place. Sin ruins all of our human relationships. It is sin that breaks families apart. Sin is why we can't trust each other completely. Sin has affected every area of our lives. But the worst thing about sin is that it's ruined our relationship with God. This is the, the first consequence of sin you really see in Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve sin, they are banished from the Garden of Eden, where they had that close relationship with God. We were created to glorify God, to enjoy fellowship with our Creator. But that opportunity has been lost because of our sin. Isaiah 59 verse 2 says, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, 
and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Sin is what causes all of the brokenness in our world. And Jesus came to save us from sin. This is the central message of Christianity, that Jesus died on a cross uh, to redeem us from our sinful condition. He took our punishment for sins on himself so that we now can be forgiven. And he calls us to live as new creatures. Uh, when we repent of our sins and, and turn in faith to Christ, we are born again. We, we begin a new life of following Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17, Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Uh, becoming a follower of Jesus means not only that all of your past and future sins are forgiven, right? You're not going to be punished for those sins, but it also means that God is making you into a new kind of person. We as Christians are called to fight against sin in our own lives and to live as Christ directs. He is our king, we are his subjects, and we follow his commands. So all of that to say, Christians ought to take sin seriously. If we allow sin in, to continue in our hearts and in our lives without repenting of it, we are not Christians. Because part of what it means to follow Jesus is to continually repent of our sin. It's not a one-time thing when you become a Christian that you turn from sin. It's an ongoing uh, pattern of your life that you are continually waging that war against the sin of your heart. Now, we haven't finally won the battle against our sin in this life. Uh, we know that all of us will continue to sin until we uh, eventually are with Christ and are redeemed and glorified bodies, as we talked about this morning. Uh, but until that time, we ought to be sinning less the longer we're a Christian. There should be a, a clear change of direction when you become a follower of Jesus, that you're living more and more in his commands. Now, let's pick up our text, Luke 17, verse 1. Jesus is speaking to his disciples, to his followers, and he says to them, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. Uh, all of us experience temptation to sin. Our temptations are different but we all have them. And Jesus tells us here that such temptations are sure to come. You can count on it. A sin is a cancer that has infected each and every one of us. It's within us and it's all around us. Our world is filled with temptations to sin. Our sinful flesh causes us to sin. And becoming a Christian doesn't mean you're no longer going to experience sin and temptation. Notice here, Jesus is, is not speaking to the Pharisees, or, or he's not talking to pagans, he's talking to his followers. He's talking to his disciples, and he says to them, you can just count on it, you will be tempted to sin. This is the reality as long as you are on this side of eternity. And so temptation to sin is sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. We're going to be tempted to sin, but Christians ought never to tempt one another to sin. Uh, listen again to Jesus' words in verse 2 as he continues talking about this. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Now, I, should, I could go on for a few minutes explaining what a millstone is and the weight of it, but none of that's really relevant. You get the point. He's saying it would be better for somebody to tie a boulder to you and throw you in Lake Michigan than for you to cause somebody to sin. And notice what he says here. Uh, notice who it would be better for, right? It says it would be better for him, for the person being thrown in the lake with the boulder. That's a better scenario than if you cause someone to sin. I don't know about you, that doesn't sound like a very good time. Uh, the thought of being drowned in a lake 
uh, with a boulder strap to me seems like it would be rather unpleasant. And yet Jesus says, even that, as terrible of a punishment as that would be, that would be better for you than if you cause someone to sin. Uh, just a side note there, you see it says that these little ones, it's probably not talking about children, uh, certainly would not fit the context here to say that it's just talking about causing kids to sin or something. Uh, rather, little ones likely is referring to those who are new Christians. You remember back in chapter 15, when this whole dialogue between the, the Jesus and the Pharisees began, it started with tax collectors and sinners who were drawing near to Christ. They had begun to follow him, and the Pharisees were, were criticizing him for that. And so Jesus is saying here, uh, don't discourage these would-be followers of mine. Don't cause them to sin. So uh, let's talk about two principles from this text. First of all, and, and this should be crystal clear from these verses, Christians ought to take sin seriously. And we should be scared to death of doing something that would cause another brother in Christ to sin. Uh, the image of someone being thrown in a sea with a boulder strapped to them is Jesus' way of communicating the gravity of the situation. And this text isn't unique. Jesus regularly used very strong imagery to warn us against casual sin. Notice Jesus' words in the parallel passage in Matthew 18. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, you notice the explanation of what little ones mean, it's a believer in Christ, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom <clears throat> the temptation comes. And if your hand or foot causes you to sin, Jesus says, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. We read those verses and instantly think, is Jesus really saying we should gouge out our eyes and cut off our hands if they're causing us to sin? And I think focusing on that imagery is kind of missing the point. Jesus is stressing the danger of living in sin. We ought to take this seriously. We ought to fight sin in every area of our lives. We should set up safeguards in our life and be accountable to others in order to avoid sin. I think the point of those verses is simply saying, don't live in sin. Don't be flippant about this. This is a serious matter. And if we don't do this, if we just sin flippantly, lightly, and we think to ourselves, well, it's not a big deal. God will forgive me. Listen again to what Jesus said. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. If you think that you can go on living in sin without consequences or judgment, you're not a Christian. There will be many in hell who assumed that they were under the grace of God and they lived lives of sin, but that is not the attitude of a true follower of Jesus. Paul wrote in Romans 6, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? That's, that's this attitude of, can I just keep sinning? God will forgive me. Verse 2, by no means. Uh, Megenomai in Greek is the strongest way of saying absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? A true Christian who's been set free from the enslavement of sin is not going to put the chains back on. And so if you're content to live in ongoing sin, that is evidence that you've never been truly converted. We ought to take sin seriously in our own lives. And we ought to fight it at every point. But that's really not the main point of this text. Uh, that's just an implied thought throughout it. 
The main principle here is that we should not cause others to sin. Uh, Don't be a stumbling block. That's the main teaching of the first two verses of Luke 17. Don't tempt others to sin. Sin is dangerous. Sin is deadly. Sin takes people to hell. Sin ruins our relationship with God and with each other. Sin ruins everything. So make sure you're not doing something that may tempt another follower of Jesus to sin. Now, there's many areas in which this principle of being a stumbling block to somebody else could be applied. Uh, If you're talking to somebody after church here today and you say, hey man, we should go rob the Chase Bank up the street, uh, that would obviously be tempting somebody to sin, but my guess is none of us are going to do that. Uh, So let's think about more practical ramifications, because rarely is it that obvious, right? Rarely do we literally go around tempting people to sin and telling them, hey, why don't you go do this terrible thing with me? Uh, For the most part, this principle is applied in less overt ways. There are many ways in which we can tempt each other to sin. We can be a stumbling block uh, to another brother in Christ that may not immediately come to mind. For example, Ephesians 6 verse 4 Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Paul is giving instruction here to fathers not to provoke their children to respond in anger. Now, it would be wrong for the child to do that, but it would also be wrong for you to provoke that in them. And so sometimes the way that we tempt others to sin is by provoking them. Uh, by in some way, and you want a good example of this, look at Christian social media, uh, where Christians provoke one another to respond poorly, right? That is uh, being a stumbling block to another Christian. If I provoke a sinful response from someone else, then I bear some responsibility for that. That is me tempting them to sin. Let's look at another example. Uh, Matthew 5, verse 25, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Here men are instructed uh, not to lust after a woman that isn't their wife. That is obviously sin. And it's a sin that men today are tempted with far more than any time in the past. Uh, Our culture flaunts women for the pleasure of men everywhere you look. You can look at billboards or advertisements. You can't watch hardly anything on television uh, without being faced with this. And so Christian women, if you don't want to tempt others to sin by lusting, that should affect the way that you dress. Now, I think this can go both ways, of course. Men ought to take this principle of modesty as well, but uh, let's just be honest, this is more of a struggle for men. And so I do believe, uh, you know, Paul mentions in in 1 Timothy chapter 2, likewise also, uh, women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair, gold, pearls, or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now, I'm not going to tell you, ladies, how you ought to be dressing. Uh, The Bible does not give us clear instructions or detailed guidelines about that, but I think we can all agree that there are ways of dressing that are inappropriate for a Christian, uh, particularly clothing that is intended to draw sexual attention to one's bodies. What is that if not being a stumbling block to others? It is tempting others to sin. And so if we're going to take seriously Jesus' words about not being one through whom temptation comes, this ought to affect the way that we think about modesty. Another way we can tempt others to sin is by setting a poor example. Uh, How you conduct yourself as a Christian is setting a pattern for others who see you. Uh, Paul writes in Galatians chapter 2, when Cephas, and that's uh, basically the Aramaic spelling of Peter, it's Peter the Apostle, When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. 
For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Okay, so the situation here is that Peter was uh, separating himself from Gentiles when the Judaizers were around. I'm not going to get into all of the background there. The point is, what he was doing was wrong. Uh, he was showing partiality. He was being hypocritical. And Paul confronted Peter about it. He says, I opposed him to his face. I got in his face and told him, what you're doing is wrong. But then notice verse 13. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So Peter was doing something wrong, and the rest of the Jews saw his actions and followed his example. Uh, they sinned along with him. And so one way that we can be a stumbling block and a temptation to others to sin is when we set the standard that sin or certain sins are acceptable. Our bad example can lead others away from following Christ. Uh, there are many sins like this in our, in our uh, Christian culture today that are almost considered to be totally acceptable, something like gossip right, or slander. Uh, Christians do this all the time without even thinking about it. But the Bible is very clear that something like gossip is sin. And so by setting this example that this is okay, uh, by doing this regularly, uh, you are tempting others to join in and follow your example in sin. Uh, we're going to look at one more example of a way in which we can tempt others to sin. And this one is a bit more complex. It'll take a little bit more time to explain. But this is the concept of violating a weak conscience of others. And to explain this, we're going to look at Romans chapter 14. Uh, in this chapter, Paul is responding to a controversy that was going on in the first century that had to do with whether or not it was okay to eat meat. Uh, he doesn't get into in this text why this was controversial. But in 1 Corinthians 8, he explains that the meat there had been uh, previously offered to idols. Okay, So people were worshiping idols in Corinth, and, and they would set their meat before the idol. Well, obviously... False gods don't eat meat, and so you had the meat still there. Uh, and they would turn around and sell it to people for food. And so there was a controversy among the Christians whether or not it was acceptable to eat this meat that had previously been involved in idolatry. Uh, some Christians thought, well, who cares? It's meat. You know, we can get a good deal. Let's eat it. Uh, other Christians said, well, no, we can't do that. That's participating in idolatry. It would be wrong to eat this meat that had been offered to idols. And so this was a controversy in the early church. And Paul addresses this issue in Romans 14, beginning in verse 2. It says, One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Okay, so we've got two kinds of people in these churches. Some believe it's fine to eat anything. Others say, no, we ought to only eat vegetables because this meat has been involved in idolatry and, and it's sort of uh, staining us to, 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 take, to take part in that uh, by eating this meat. Verse 3, here's the principle. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. So to the ones who think it's totally acceptable, it's totally fine to eat this meat, Paul says you should not look down on people who choose to abstain from it. And for those of you who abstain from eating the meat, you should not be judging those who choose differently. Now, we don't have this issue today, right? Nobody's arguing about whether to eat meat offered to idols. Uh, but this principle can be applied to a lot of current day debates. For example, I think it is perfectly in keeping with the spirit of this text to say something like this. Let not the one who gets vaccinated 
despise the one who doesn't. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who gets vaccinated. Now, wouldn't we all be better off if we adopted that attitude? Uh, this is a, a simple principle. If, if something is not clearly sin in Scripture, there is freedom to disagree, and we ought to do so charitably. Uh, verse 4, Paul goes on to say, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. He will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. This is another controversial issue in that day. Uh, should New Testament Christians hold to Sabbaths and feast days of the Old Covenant? Uh, this was something Christians didn't always come to the same, uh, same page on. Okay, And so Paul says, well, some of you think that you should be observing these Old Testament feasts. Some of you don't. Uh, either way, you ought to be fully convinced in your own mind. And so he's saying these controversial issues where Scripture doesn't necessarily give us a clear answer one way or the other, don't judge each other. Each one of you ought to do what you are fully convinced in your mind is right. Verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee should bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Each one of us should do what we believe is right because each one of us is going to answer to God for our own lives. So stop worrying about what everybody else decides to do. Stop judging all of them. Focus on yourself and do what you believe is right. Verse 13, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. And here's where the principle from our text in Luke 17 comes into play. When it comes to these types of disagreements in the church over something that's uh, not clearly addressed in Scripture, whether it's right or wrong, each person needs to come to their own conclusion about what they believe is right and then do that. But we ought also to be sensitive to the conscience of others. We don't want to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of another brother. We don't want to tempt them to sin. Verse 14, Paul goes on to say, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So in verse 14, Paul says, hey, if you want my opinion on this controversy, uh, the whole eating meat thing, I actually think it's fine to do it. Uh, my personal view, it's, it's fine to eat this meat. I know that nothing is unclean in itself, he says. It's, it's perfectly fine to eat this meat. But if my brother in Christ is grieved by what I'm eating because he thinks it's wrong, then the loving thing to do is not to eat it in his presence. Verse 20, Paul goes on to say, Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. You see the principle there. It, it is okay to eat this meat. However, if a brother in Christ is grieved by you doing this, don't cause them to stumble. Uh, don't, don't invite them over for a dinner party and serve this meat in their presence. Uh, that would be violating their conscience. Verse 21. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Uh, blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. So he says, if you're convinced, if you're fully persuaded this is okay, that's fine. Uh, keep that between you and God. Don't grieve your brother in Christ 
by doing something that would violate their conscience. Now, uh, let's bring this again into the context of current day issues, since we're not debating whether or not meat is acceptable to eat. Uh, so let's talk about real examples of how this principle can be applied. Uh, and I'm going to give you an example from my own life, and I, I'm not trying to be critical at all in, in saying this. Uh, I was very blessed to have been raised in a Christian home. Uh, my parents taught us the Bible from the time we were born. We were in church every Sunday, and now all three of us uh, kids are adults. Or I'm sorry, three of the five are adults now. Uh, my brother pastors in West Virginia. I obviously pastor here. My sister works at a Christian college. We're all involved in ministry. Uh, my parents are still up in New York. They go to a church in the area up there. Now, there are a great many, uh, I'm sorry, there are many great things about having a Christian family, but there are also some challenges. Uh, Romans 14 type issues come up sometimes because although there are many things that we all have in common, okay, everyone in my family is, is a conservative Baptist, like we, we agree on a lot of things, there are still a few points of disagreement. I think this is uh, probably the case in pretty much any family where you have a bunch of Christians, they're not always going to come to the same conclusions on every individual thing. For example, some of my family prefers more traditional styles of Christian music. Uh, others of us, myself included, are fine with modern styles of Christian music as well. Now, I am uh, fully convinced in my own mind that much of contemporary Christian music is fantastic. It glorifies God, uh, is rich theology. However, when someone on the more traditional end of my family spectrum is in my car, I turn off the music. Okay, even if I may think it's perfectly fine, perfectly acceptable uh, to listen to it, if I know that it might be a stumbling block to them, if it violates their conscience, it would be wrong for me to blast my music in their presence. It would be selfish and sinful if I did that. And so Romans 14 teaches us that we should be conscious of how our actions may affect other brothers and sisters in Christ, even if the thing we're doing is not wrong in and of itself. We should be willing to limit our freedom for the sake of a weaker brother's conscience because we don't want to cause someone else to stumble. I don't want to tempt others to sin by violating their conscience. Uh, one final point this morning before we conclude, this is just uh, another way in which we can be a stumbling block with it. that temptation can come through us to other brothers. I'm just going to introduce this now. We're going to really lead into uh, this part of the text next week. If you look down at verse 3, right after saying, uh, make sure you're not tempting others to sin, Jesus says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. So if your brother sins, you are to rebuke him. We ought to take sin seriously. We are to make sure that we are not ourselves tempting others to sin, and we're supposed to be a positive force in their life. In other words, verse 1 and 2 of the text are saying, don't cause them to sin. Verse 3 is saying, not only that, but help them not to keep sinning. We aren't just supposed to be neutral towards others. We should encourage each other to follow Jesus. So if you think of sin like a pit, okay, verse 1 is saying, make sure you're not pushing a brother into the pit of sin. Verse 3 is saying, if you see your brother in the pit, help him out. Don't be a source of temptation and love others enough to rebuke them when you see they are trapped in sin. All of this goes back to something I've said many times already. We as Christians are to take sin seriously. It's a danger that we should be willing to personally confront each other when we see one another in sin. And that's not easy. Uh, it would be far easier to say, uh, you know, that's their life. It's none of my business. They can do whatever they want. You know, they're going to answer to God. But in the church, it is your business. 
We all have the responsibility to help each other fight sin and follow Jesus. So to wrap up here, and again, we're going to pick this up next week in verse 3, uh, we should never be a source of temptation. Rather, we should be pushing each other to love and follow Jesus more and more. And all of this comes from a heart of love for one another. If you, if you see someone, I'm sorry, if you love someone, you don't want them to live in sin apart from God and face his judgment. You want them to follow Christ. And we ought to be willing to do anything that we can to help them in that pursuit. Uh, one final text, 1 John 2, verse 10. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. We hope the message you just heard was helpful to you. It means a lot to us that you would join us for this podcast. For more information about our church and meeting times, visit lbcmiller.com or call us at 219-885-9303. We would love to hear from you.